0: Hi, everyone. Before we get to today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that LCI has another podcast called the Faith Seeking Freedom podcast. It's a little bit different from what you're used to. And because it's very different, we don't want to keep it in this podcast feed. So you can actually go subscribe to the Faith Seeking Freedom podcast wherever you get your podcast. The Faith Seeking Freedom podcast is a podcast that is entirely question and answer and because we've kept each episode short we can actually release them more frequently and you can actually listen to them in a shorter time frame and you can even share them with friends or people that you want to spread the message of liberty. So check out and subscribe to the Faith Seeking Freedom podcast. Okay, back to the regular podcast.
1: Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian
0: Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you are not watching on YouTube, you should be, and you can go over to our YouTube channel and subscribe to us because this is actually one that you're going to want to kind of watch. Although I guess maybe it's okay to listen to because it's uh, we're going to discuss two guys debating something and then yeah. we're going to discuss those things. And so Norman's here with me. Hey, Norman. Hey, Doug. Back in like, you know, the last decade, almost a decade times. ago <laughs> in the ancient time, the BC before COVID yeah. times <laughs> and the before LCI times when it was just libertarianchristians.com, you mm-hmm. did a debate with Alan Carlson in 2013. So, this is before LCI was established as a nonprofit, but you were still operating on behalf of libertarianchristians.com. And you debated whether or not the government should define marriage as between one man and one woman with this guy, Alan
2: Carlson. And where was it again? I've So, this happened, like you said, in 2013 at Patrick Henry College. This is, it was a kind of unusual incident to begin with because it's not like I get regularly invited to do debates all over the world or something like that or even to get a whole I don't get a whole lot of speaking engagements or whatever I mean that's fine I go on podcasts and whatnot but this was pretty different because this was we want you to come to this college outside of Washington DC in Arlington not even Arlington Virginia I forget it. it's outside of Arlington Virginia Patrick Henry College is a small Christian school actually populated by a lot of homeschoolers who go and attend there mm-hmm. and The Wilberforce Society president, this guy named Chris, Chris Hamilton invited me out of nowhere, basically, and because he felt like it would be an interesting debate topic. And that is like the resolution of, should the government define marriage as between one man and one woman? So this was really interesting because the debate partner was a gentleman who, I mean, I came to know a little bit through his own work as I did my own research and homework on him and uh, named Alan Carlson. And Dr. Carlson is the president of the Howard Center for Family Law and Public Policy, I think is what the full name is. Assuming he's still there, I haven't looked him up recently. I have a lot of respect for his work. I think he's done some really interesting things and you'll see in the debate that, well, you'll you'll catch on to where I went with my argument and whatnot.
0: (laughs) So why are you and I on screen here if all we're gonna do is replay a debate? Actually, that's not all we're gonna do, right?
2: (laughs) Yeah, so we're gonna play this debate for you guys but then we're also going to commentate, so there may be some kind of interjections in the middle. We may pause and have some discussion. With some amens, yes, yeah, some amens, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe some boos. <laughs> I'll maybe I'll boo myself altar call a few times. End. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and hopefully provide some additional context as to you know maybe even like some yeah. of the things I was thinking and why I approached it in certain ways. We'll see what I remember and what I don't.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. Well, without further ado we will hit share on the screen here and actually get this rolling there's an introduction to it that is given by Patrick Henry College i think the audio was clipped just a tiny bit right at the beginning but it's not you know it's pretty trivial so anyway here we go in our
3: society in regards to morality and we are committed to defending the moral character of society through both law and culture <laughs> so we hope that you learn something from tonight and get some new ideas on how to engage in the discussion in a constructive and substantive fashion. With that, I want to introduce our moderator for tonight, Dr. Mitchell. He, as most of you know, is the chairman of the department of government and one of our much loved political theory professors at Patrick I think it's really helpful that they introduce so who you are cuz you know you look quite different sir.
2: Oh my gosh, I also yeah. I would say <laughs>
3: that if you want to get involved with the Wilberforce society and you have any questions you can talk to me or to Chris Hamilton right over there.
2: Oh, never mind. So I was not we'd Chris Hamilton. And we be happy to tell there. you what our
3: plans are for the next semester and tell so you how, how to get stage involved. Left. Also if you're watching this on the webcast if you have oh, any yeah, questions, this you can live. email we, we, they president at wilberforcesociety.org. And we'll back definitely get day. back to you. And I'll help note, you by the way, this took
4: a
2: while album. to figure out where this
4: so footage that, went. So I want
3: to turn it over to Dr. Mitchell <laughs> to introduce our debaters and to get things rolling. We had to search around rolling. for
4: a while. Well, good evening. It's a pleasure to be here. And this is uh, promising to be a stimulating discussion. First, I'm going to introduce our speakers, and then I will introduce the format of this event like my burn orange uh, shirt for UC Austin. Left, I guess your <laughs> far right is Dr. Norman Horn. Dr. Horn holds a PhD in chemical engineering from the University of uh, Texas at Austin and a master's of arts in theological studies. Yeah, this studies was 2013, so I had Graduate finished School my PhD by this point. <laughs> He's won awards for his writing and both in engineering and theology, which is quite a, a feat. Not too many people can claim such a span. <laughs> He's authored a variety of articles in science, economics, political theory. And he's been published in a variety of venues, including Young American Revolution, Students for Liberty, LouRockwell.com, The Washington Post. He is the uh, founder and editor of a website called libertarianchristians.com. I encourage you to check it out. I was there this afternoon. And uh, (laughs) it's a website dedicated to exploring libertarian theory from a Christian point of view. Next, we have Dr. Alan Carlson. Nice to know that uh, he's a reader. Carlson is the president <laughs> of the Howard Center for Family, Religion, and Society in Rockford, Illinois. Family, Illinois, Religion. And founder Society. and there international secretary of the World Congress of Families. And you holds a worldwide event every two years, is that correct? Which is pretty cool. Um, he's the great. editor of The Family in America, a journal of public policy, which I would encourage you all to uh, check out. He holds a PhD in modern European history from Ohio University, and he's taught. In a variety of colleges, including Gettysburg College, Hillsdale College, and John Paul II Institute on Marriage and Family of the Catholic University of America. So
2: this guy's resume is uh, way Ronald bigger President Reagan than mine.
4: appointed him to the National <laughs> Commission on Children, in which he served until 1993. He's the author of 12 books, several of the titles, Family Questions, Reflections on the American Social Crisis, The American Way, Family and Community in the Shaping of the American Identity, Conjugal America, on the uh, public purposes of marriage and the forthcoming, the natural, what a family, name, right? where it belongs, new variant <laughs> essays. And I've had the opportunity to read an advanced copy, and uh, it's it's going to be a little a, creepy. well worth reading. So I eh, encourage you it's to fine. look for that when it comes out. He's been a commentator on a variety of uh, television programs ABC, CBS, NBC, PBS, MSNBC, and so on. And uh, he also serves as senior editor for Touchstone, Journal of Mere Christianity, another journal that that's you really should know about a if good one. you have not heard of it. So check it out. It's in our library. So much for introductions. Now, tonight, the resolution that is going to be debated, resolved, that government should define marriage as between one man and one woman. I suspect that, um, uh, I, I think that the, the, uh, the crux of this is going to be the government. That is, who should be making these calls? What role should the government play in defining marriage? enforcing marriage, and I think we're going to be in for a stimulating discussion. Here's the format. Dr. Carlson will open with 15 minutes in defense of the resolution. Dr. Horn will reply with 15 minutes, and then Dr. Carlson will have a five-minute rebuttal, followed by a six-minute rebuttal from Dr. Horn, followed by a one-minute rebuttal by Dr. Carlson. That'll give us 45 minutes or so and then there's going to be 25 or 30 minutes for your questions. So as they are discussing, I hope that you are formulating questions and getting those ready to go because there's going to be a good chance for interaction with our speakers after they speak. So with no further discussion, let us begin. Dr. Carlson, you have 15 minutes. Thank you. In my
1: opening uh, remarks, I will focus on three points. First, biblical revelation versus evolutionary science on the matter of marriage. Second, the distinctive Christian understanding of marriage. And third, the secular reasons why the state must be involved in defining and defending true marriage. Modern debates about marriage and family frequently pit the partisans of biblical revelation against the advocates of science and evolution. Contemporary advocates of same-sex marriage have adopted this tactic arguing that marriage evolves to meet new ends and new means and new needs, while religious folk remain bogged down in old biblical passages no longer relevant. As I see it, the story of Scripture and science's evolutionary narrative actually wind up in surprising agreement over the origin and nature of the human creature, with true marriage being the key variable. People of biblical faith—Jews, Christians, and Muslims alike— find the origins of the family chronicled in Genesis 1 and 2. Here, God establishes marriage as an unchanging aspect of his creation, essential to the divine order on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. These passages affirm marriage as both sexual, be fruitful and multiply, and economic, the phrase regarding fill the earth and subdue it. What does science teach? Well, the founders of modern anthropology also held that marriage is an unchanging institution, universal in its basic elements, common to all humanity. As Edward Westermark explained a century ago, among the lowest savages, as well as the most civilized races of men, we find the family consisting of parents and children and the father as its protector. Marriage bound this family system together, uniting a regulated sexual relation with economic obligations. Certainly, there have been differences in the marriage systems of distinct human cultures. However, the fundamental marriage bond has not changed and does not change As a later anthropologist, George Murdoch, wrote in his great 1949 survey of human cultures, the nuclear family is a universal human social grouping. He added, all known human societies have developed specialization and cooperation between the sexes, roughly along this biologically determined line of cleavage. Contemporary evolutionary scientists agree. In an important meta-analysis for the American Journal of Science, paleoanthropologist C. Owen Lovejoy argues that the unique sexual and reproductive behavior of man, not growth of the brain or cortex, this may be the key to human origin. The evolutionary narrative, he says, indicates that the pairing off of male and female hominids, early men, into something very much like married couples actually reaches back three to four million years. As Lovejoy concludes, both advances in the material culture and the Pleistocene acceleration in brain development came after an already established hominid character system, which included intensified parenting and social relationships, monogamous pair bonding, and specialized sexual reproductive behavior. This implies that the nuclear family And human sexual behavior may have their ultimate origin long before the dawn of the Pleistocene. In short, the invention of marriage and social fatherhood, where men take responsibility for their offspring, these were the vital steps in human evolution. Now, certainly they remain differences on timing. Nonetheless, the biblical narrative and the scientific record agree on this. From our very origin as unique creatures on Earth, We humans have been defined by heterosexual monogamy involving marriage and social fatherhood and by the special linkage of the reproductive and the economic, a linkage in which two become one flesh. According to the scientists, the evolution of marriage did occur, but only once. At the beginning, when to be human also came to mean to be marital. Other cultural variations surrounding marriage are simply details. Any change is the mark of cultural strengthening or weakening around a constant human model. Accordingly, when governments restrict the privileges and burdens of marriage to heterosexual couples, they do so in obedience to both biblical revelation and to science. My second point. The fathers of the early Christian church were clear on a key matter. First purpose of marriage is procreation. As John Chrysostom explained in the mid-fourth century, there are two reasons why marriage was instituted, that we may live chastely and that we may become parents. Christians also insisted on monogamy, one woman married to one man for life. In the year 400 AD, Augustine, Bishop of Hippo, wrote the book On the Goods of Marriage. He argued that God desired man's perpetuation through marriage, offspring he insisted, were an obvious good of marriage, the other two being fidelity and sacramental union. As Augustine elaborated, what food is to the health of man, intercourse is to the health of the human race. And each is not without its carnal delight, which cannot be lust if, modified and restrained by temperance, is brought to a natural use, procreation. Augustine also insisted that the act of procreation included the receiving of children lovingly, the nourishing of them humanely, the educating of them religiously. The Protestants of the 16th century introduced no change on most of these matters. As the reformer Martin Luther wrote in 1521, God's words in Genesis 1.28, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, represented more than a blessing, even more than a command. They were rather a divine ordinance, which it is not our prerogative to hinder or ignore. The Geneva-based reformer John Calvin put even greater emphasis on Genesis 1.28. He argued that these words represented the only command of God made before the fall that was still active after God drove Adam and Eve out of Eden. This gave this phrase a unique power and importance. Calvin added that this pure and lawful method of increase, which God ordained from the beginning, remains firm. This is that law of nature which common sense declares to be inviolable. Luther drove home the same point. We were all created to do as our parents have done to beget and rear children. This is a duty which God has laid upon us, commanded, and implanted in us, as is proved by our bodily members, our daily emotions, and the example of all mankind. Indeed, this last point, the example of all mankind, explains why Luther abandoned the Roman Catholic understanding of marriage as a sacrament. Simply put, he noted that marriage was not unique to Christianity. Rather, it was universal, found among Jews, Muslims, pagans, and Christians alike. All the same, the Reformers uniformly insisted that rulers— that is, heads of government, had a moral duty to recognize and protect this vital human institution from those who would do it harm. My third point, grievous challenges to the institution of marriage are indeed nothing new. The Soviet Bolsheviks waged war on marriage and home for the first two decades of the Russian Revolution. A century and a quarter earlier, the Jacobins of the French Revolution also sought to tear down marriage laws resting on inherited principles. The proposed French Civil Code of 1801, for example, promised freedom to marry and easy divorce. Ignoring both Christian thought and the evidence of all history, the radical authors of this measure argued that, quote, what marriage itself is was previously unknown. And it is only in recent times that men have acquired precise ideas on marriage, unquote. Building on the thought of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the architects of the 1801 code urged that marriage be made natural, by which they meant animalistic, subject to the ebb and flow of the passions. Marriage as such should be easy to enter, easy to leave. Louis de Bonald, spelled B-O-N-A-L-D, a statesman and a founder of modern social science, rose in defense of traditional marriage. His 1801 book, titled in English Translation, On Divorce, remains a valuable resource in helping sort out issues regarding marriage. Bonald's first task was to clarify that marriage in itself and at bottom has always been a civil, religious, and physical act at once. Marriage attracted the attention of civil legislators, in Bonald's view, because it was the founding act of domestic society whose interests should be guaranteed by civil authority. But this domestic society did not really rest on the needs or desires of the spouses. The end of marriage, he wrote, is not the happiness of the spouses. If by happiness one understands an idyllic pleasure of the heart and senses. Rather, and this is key, the end or purpose of marriage is the reproduction and above all the conservation of man. Since this conservation cannot in general take place outside of marriage or without marriage. Now, by conservation, Bernald meant the proper care, rearing, education, and protection of children, which he believed could be best achieved in the married couple home. If sexual pleasure or happiness was the goal of marriage, he said, then the civil authority had no business being involved. Instead, Bernald wrote, political power only. Intervenes in the spouse's contract of union because it represents the unborn child, which is the sole object of marriage, and because it accepts the commitment made by the spouses in its presence and under its guarantee to bring that child into being. In effect, a marriage is truly a contract, in his words, between three persons, two of whom are present, one of whom, the potential child, is absent but is represented by public power, guarantor of the commitment made by the two spouses to form a society. Bonald also explained why the marriage of a man and a woman who proved infertile or unable to create a child remained valid. Many of the French Revolution's philosophers worried about the size of the French population and called for easy divorce in cases of failed fertility so that new pairings of men and women might be tried to produce the children that would be needed for war later on. Binald replied, whatever importance may be attached to population by these great depopulators of the universe, they would doubtless not dare to maintain that in human marriages, one should, as on stud farms, proceed by trial. In short, government's should not be in the business of fertility tests. Rather, government should understand the potential fertility of all male-female bonds by implication, including even modern ones via the Petri dish, and the powerful positive effects on children of the complementarity of man and woman. The state then holds together the potential or actual parents for the sake of good conservation of the potential or actual children. Bernal's argument underscores the central matter here. The real issue at play is not marriage per se. It is responsible procreation. All healthy human societies have a deep primal interest in ensuring that children are born and that they grow up in stable, two-parent, male-female homes. Thousands upon thousands of social science research projects do affirm that it is these households in these households that children have the best prospects to grow into healthy happy intelligent and independent citizens this is what true marriage is all about and this is why the state is involved if current efforts to deconstruct marriage succeed we face only two real options either we'll have to recreate this same bundle of privileges burdens and incentives under another label, or we will accelerate our current path towards social ruin and public bankruptcy.
2: Thank you. Okay. So lots of stuff that could be talked about here. And I know that I'll, you know, my opening statement is going to not exactly address all these points, but I think a couple of things that I would note from the outset here is that Like a lot of the stuff that he's saying, like I agree with, which is kind of funny. I mean, other than the state involvement portion, you know, it's like, well, for this reason, the state should be involved. It's interesting because I think that if I recall right, I don't exactly attack it in this way, but in no manner does his argument justify the use of aggression to get what he wants, which I think is something I probably don't get into that as well as I probably should have and could have, But there's some really interesting things he says here that like, you know, this whole thing about the primary purpose being procreation, but the government shouldn't be in the business of fertility is like, that's walking a really tenuous line already. Mm -hmm. It's like, how are you going to do this? What is it there for otherwise? And it's just interesting that his manner of trying to argue for this, I think it's walking a really fine line. And it kind of begs the question a little bit like, well, if it's not supposed to do this, and its purpose is this, then what is it there for? And so I don't think I I really attacked it on that front as well as I probably could have. I do think it's also funny that he talks about to be human is to be marital, and that when the government then protects marriage in certain ways, it's doing it both in obedience to biblical law and obedience to science. What does that sound like?
0: (laughs) Hey,
2: is that following the science? Whoa.
4: whoa, whoa. Uh, I see.
2: Yeah. (laughs) I think it's kind of a little funny considering our current, you know, milieu of intellectual discussion by the modern day, shall we say, 10 years later.
0: One thing I find interesting that he's at Patrick Henry College, which, okay, I don't know a whole lot. Actually, I don't know anything about Patrick Henry College. But my guess is these are not a bunch of kids sitting there that are conducive to evolution and to evolutionary biology. But for some reason, for the record, he wanted to make that part of his argument.
2: But that's actually like... It's, which is it's a interesting. smart move. Yeah, because it, it, he's sort of saying like, no matter which angle you come at, this is yeah. where you end up. And I don't think he's necessarily wrong on that. Yeah. And you'll definitely hear me say here, I, I'm 100% certain that in this opening statement, I talk a little bit about like, this. there are some great things that Dr. Carlson has to say about things like, you know, no fault divorce and, mm-hmm. and the purpose of marriage and so on and so forth. Like, I think he's got a lot of good things to say there. He's, he's a very respectable person. So I I get that. It'll be interesting to see where it goes uh, (laughs) at that point. (laughs) Side note in time, this was in either October or November 2013. And at this point in time, I was definitely not bearded. And part of the reason for that was actually that when I, uh, I was living in Austin, my grandmother was still alive and she hated beards. And then she passed away at the end of 2013 and after that is when I started growing it. <laughs> and then I just kept it ever since, I guess. Just eh, looks all right. But it yeah. does demonstrate just how gray you can get from your own children. As you can tell, I'm far more stressed out than Doug is. So.
4: <laughs>
2: Wait, what? <laughs> oh, but the gray That's, hair. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm wearing a hat for a
0: reason. So yeah yeah, yeah you exactly know, it, it can go it can go both ways well, i suppose I mean, you
2: can tell I'm, I'm also i'm also 10 years older based purely on on receding hairline you know Oh yeah well we'll have to take this conversation oh, yeah. offline here
0: um, so what i really want to know is what does 2013 Dr. Norman Horn say in response yeah. to this No well and, we uh, and and i also even more importantly what i want to hear is what does today's Norman say about <laughs> previous Norman. Anyway, yeah, I think yeah. y'all get what I'm going for.
2: Okay. Okay, first of all, I want to say a few words of thanks here. I just want to thank Patrick Henry College, of course, for hosting the debate. Ooh, listen society. to that young voice. You guys have been awesome. So thank sultry. you for organizing this and especially to Chris <laughs> Hamilton for really making this happen. I'd also like to thank Dr. Carlson for being here. It's been a real pleasure reading what he's had to say on, on his website and I, I highly suggest you check it out. I think you will definitely learn a few things. Now, As I begin, I want to first off say that I'm not speaking as a spokesperson for the Libertarian Party, although I do believe my views are compatible with their goals. I'm speaking as what we might call a small L Libertarian.
0: I'm going to pause for just a second and I just just to note that this is just so common for people like you and me Mm -hmm. to make sure that when people hear us speak as Libertarians, we're speaking as Libertarians as a philosophy,
2: not as a party.
0: Which I'm is pretty sure both
2: sad and kind of funny. <laughs> I'm pretty sure though that even at this point like I think either Dr. Mitchell or Chris suggested that I do this very thing. Ah, uh, okay, you know, got it. I'm, I'm fairly certain that happened although I, I for the record it that is a vague memory. <laughs> yeah. And to briefly define libertarianism yep. as, as Dr. Mitchell asked me to do. There we go. Short We believe that the initiation of force is unjustified, whether by individuals or by a group of individuals, for instance, by government, in order to accomplish some sort of goal. Now, for me, I'm speaking as well as a Christian libertarian who considers that this philosophy of liberty is a natural outgrowth of a Christian worldview. And therefore, I hold many of the same ideas that Dr. Carlson has regarding the origin of marriage from a biblical and theological point of view. But my goal here is not just to defend the negative of the resolution, that is, that the government should not be the one to define marriage at all, but to argue why the state shouldn't involve itself in marriage at all. I want to present also a positive case for what we can do as Christians to promote freedom for all and to build up families and the church. So I will focus on three points. He's all right. The first point here is, that definition from the state to define marriage is actually unnecessary. As Dr. As Dr. Carlson Unnecess- even said, marriage predates the nation state, Well, it also predates countries. It predates cities, towns, all sorts of government bodies and judicial systems. It predates even the church. Genesis 1's definition was written at least about 1,200 years before the birth of Christ, depending on how you want to date it and whether timing is an issue there is is immaterial. We know even further, however, that marriage predates even that. It doesn't need government protection or regulation. Marriage is a private institution and, I would say, a, a Christian sacrament, but it does have a public component. But it's also not the other way around. It's primarily private. It's primarily Christian to us, especially as Christians. Now, that public component as unromantic as it may seem, is really just the recognition of a consensual contract. And that contract may even be understood to be judged in the form of arbitration if there is a problem. And even then, if the arbiter is selected by those consensual individuals to be something non-state, such as the church, for instance, you realize that the state is completely unnecessary there as well. The state has no business regulating private institutions. If you believe in limited to zero government, there's no reason to empower the government, for instance, with regulating, say, private business. Meddling in that sphere leads to trouble and to tyranny in the economic sphere. So how much more so should we be concerned with the government meddling in cultural institutions such as marriage? We don't think government should regulate churches. And we think that's absurd. How much more so should we be concerned about an institution fundamental to the propagation of mankind itself. The government doesn't need to be there. Second, defining and regulating marriage, especially in our American sense, is not constitutional. Even on the federal government's own terms, it has no authority with which to regulate marriage. Just like it has no authority to force a healthcare system upon us, or to provide social security, or to create a welfare state, to grope me or my family in airports like they did this morning. <laughs> Or wage war without congressional <laughs> declaration or wage a war on drugs. Dude, that
0: was... I don't know if you have any one-liners later, but that might just be the most memorable thing I'll take away from this.
2: <laughs> that, was, that was prior to me getting a TSA pre. So, yeah, wait, I don't even know. Did that exist in 2013? I think it, it... Well, keep in mind, this was a less than a year, I think, after our battles with the TSA in yeah, Texas. right.
0: Yeah. Long story, we
2: won't get into that now. But uh, at that point in my life, I didn't have TSA pre, and I was flying around various places anyway. And it was was annoying. That's funny. (laughs) Yeah, Good good one, man. (laughs) They don't have the authority to do any of those things. It's not constitutional. So granting the feds this sort of power is really an affront to the American founder's sort of vision. In fact, really, the Constitution even only mentions culture A few times at best, and you kind of have to make a stretch. You might say, well, it's mention of patents and copyright, maybe one. (laughs) Maybe of women voting, of labor, or maybe about prohibition itself, and we know how that turned out. (laughs) We should oppose all sorts of constitutional measures, including the ones we don't personally like. meant extra constitutional measures. Defining and regulating marriage is unconstitutional. It doesn't need to be done. It's not within the power of the federal government to do. But you might ask, well, what about doing this in the form of other smaller states or local government's power? Well, I would also argue then that the power to define and regulate marriage is not a power any government should have at all. Government's purpose, if it has a purpose at all, ought to only be the protection of individual rights in person and property, not the handling of an economy or deciding what you and I are gonna do with our lives and not setting the course of culture. Culture is a resilient entity in and of itself. It doesn't need to have government trying to meddle and direct it. Now, instead of allowing culture to thrive, the solution to the culture war, and letting the church handle these sorts of things, we instead get a massive legal apparatus surrounding marriage and family issues. And this confuses us to no end. And it starts even much earlier than what we have here today with arguments about in the public square about same-sex marriage. Did you know that even... Actually, it was in the 17th century that America had anti-miscegenation laws that you could be legally prosecuted for having a relationship or a marriage with someone who of a different race. This is what happens when you allow the government to define what marriage is. It not only becomes monopolized in the legal system, it then, after it monopolizes the legal system before us, it also purports to dictate how you're going to arrange your consensual contracts in this regard. At present the American system creates a special class of the married versus the unmarried. And the legal system that surrounds that creates so much confusion that almost none of us, married people included, really know how anything works. It promotes irresponsibility and reduces our liberty as a result. Irresponsibility in how we enter into relationships, irresponsibility in how we exit them. Instead of placing these sorts of Responsibilities in the realm of the church and in the realms of agreed upon contracts, we let the state handle whatever we want. Pause. 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 That's so kudos, past norm, for hitting that point hard because that was (laughs) uh, that's so that's so apropos here. In that you know we talk a lot about that liberty does require responsibility, and it doesn't matter like where you go in like the liberty movement these days. That's something that you're going to hear whether it's you know the LCI as small L libertarians or even big L libertarians in the LP. This is talked about. And so it's just interesting that when you start correlating this aspect of the more power that you seed into the state, breeding irresponsibility, liberty goes away. Anyway, I just thought
4: mm. was, just hitting yeah. that
2: in a couple different notes right there was just like, ah, oh, it's some nice wordsmithing there past norm. Yeah, not bad. <laughs> Incidentally- Dr. Carlson has actually written about some of these similar topics, especially in his (laughs) writings on no-fault divorce. Oh, this is good. (laughs) I remember this. I found that very enlightening. When you consider that at present, I believe he quotes, I I can't remember the person, but he says, it's interesting that in the modern courtroom, in the divorce courtroom, the only person who is considered guilty until proven innocent is the defendant of a no-fault divorce. Yeah. So we see a distortion of law (laughs) itself when the state gets involved. And these things are not only promoting that irresponsibility in handling marriage, it reduces our liberty as a result. Government handling of marriage removes Christian marriage from the church, or at least it deceives us. Because how many of us really think about the fact or consider it that we're not really married until we get that marriage license signed and filed in a courtroom? The biblical model is very different, as Dr. Carlson even just said.
0: I want to pause on this note because this is something that a lot of... I grew up in a culture where it was really, 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 really important that you wait before marriage to have Mm -hmm. sex. And, you know, as Christians, we believe that. But, you know, there are certain Christian cultures that sort of really, really brought that to the forefront in their, you know, like teen ministries and so forth. It's yeah, like, you know, the purity
2: G- culture of the 90s that we grew up in. Yeah the, yeah, the
0: purity culture. I didn't quite grow up in the purity culture, but I read the books, you know, and, and things like that. And I do remember my friend got married, and this was in 2010, I believe. I had a friend who got married, and my other friend, who was his best man, and the three of us were pretty good friends, and I was in the wedding... And his dad was the one doing the service, right? He was the one marrying them. And this was in the state of Indiana. So I don't remember what the laws are in the state of Indiana or what they were in 2010. But when they were doing the rehearsal, they were saying something like, they didn't actually go through with the vowels saying, like, word for word, because there was this, like, sort of sacred thing about saying them word for word. Because, like, I don't know. I I honestly, I think there was this secret fear that, like, well, we we said it last night, so like the bride and groom are going to go sneak off and have sex or something.
2: I don't know. Oh, my.
0: But I just remember, I remember thinking, oh, okay, fine. They're just, you know, being cautious or what. I don't know what the words are. And I'm just like, oh, interesting. And, you know, I was married at the time. Uh, I'm still married. I was already married. So I got married before. <laughs> but like, it just was really interesting to me how Christians really are deceived. And that's why I'm bringing this up. Into believing that this is what sort of seals the deal that yeah. like God is endorsing you two going to bed now because the state has signed it. Like if yeah, now for it's some official. reason
2: it's this idea of being
0: official yeah. about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we didn't have Facebook back then to be Facebook official. So like maybe that will count now. I don't know. It's <laughs> so, like well, as soon as you it, change your Facebook even, status.
2: Even in common law, there are establishments and and you know for what constitutes marriage Mm -hmm. over the course of years, you know, cohabitation over the course of some X number of years counts as common law marriage and stuff like that. And and that confers certain, you know, kind of legal privileges, things like power of attorney, medical power of attorney, so on. Mm -hmm. And those are are actually like, again, that didn't need the state even to get that. And we didn't, I don't think we really get into the common law components of all this. Yeah, you probably, yeah. I can't remember. It might've come up in some of the Q&A, it doesn't really matter, but it's like, it's interesting, like how even, even the legal record and legal in the sense of like real law, like common law, not legislative action, but just common law developed over the course of decades, centuries and whatnot, affirms all of this, that it doesn't need the state to make definitions. It just exists, you know, and it kind of goes to Carlson's evolutionary point for the most part. It's like, all of this stuff arises naturally. Legislation be damned. I mean, it's like Mm -hmm. none of that matters. And that's what's so interesting about, like whenever you then try to abrogate natural law and common law in this case, and try to build out a state or legal apparatus in the form of a government that then regulates this stuff, you end up, you know, causing a lot of confusion. And it's just funny. And by the way, we should note here and while we have a moment that like, this whole idea of like, well, you know, Let's appeal to your conservative minds here for a second. If you think as a limited to zero, notice I said limited to zero, government advocate, as of course I, I think I, we
0: should always limit it to zero.
2: Yeah, well, you know, I have to. Sort That's of, not what you I, meant. I'm sort of, uh, you know, surreptitiously <laughs> outing myself as a more or less the you know just the anarcho-capitalist that I am, of course. But the conservative mind, if you're like, okay, even if you're supposedly for like limited government and all that sort of thing, like Mm -hmm. you're the the minarchist, if you will, like you say that the government shouldn't be regulating private institutions. That's what you say, right? Like it shouldn't regulate your business because it doesn't know how to run it. you shouldn't regulate your church because it darn well shouldn't. It shouldn't tell you how to run your family because that's not something it should be empowered to do. But... But in the case of marriage, well, that's where we need it. Like, like that's yeah, the cultural right. institution
0: yep. that needs it. And it's like, come on. There's a line in the show West Wing that says that conservatives want to make the government so small it can fit in your bedroom. Yeah,
2: <laughs> right. <laughs> I think that's. I think that predates the West Wing though. Technically.
0: Oh, <laughs> well, maybe I don't know. That's where I first heard
2: it. That's yeah. That's probably a years PJ ago. work you know, rip PJ. Yeah, that's so, probably you
0: know, but- yeah. <laughs> Hey, everyone, if you're like me, you listen to a lot of podcasts by producers and creators who have a listener support model. Sometimes people call it the Patreon model where they ask listeners to give them money to keep the podcast going because they want a list of supporters. And there's certain benefits to doing that. They offer you know, free episodes ahead of time or bonus content and so forth. LCI has taken a different approach because we're a 501c3 nonprofit. We operate solely on the donations of those who are generous and love what we do. Now, we are totally appreciative of the fact that we have a growing audience and everybody's sharing our content. But if you'd like to be one of the people who donate to the Libertarian Christian Institute, because we're a nonprofit, it's actually tax deductible. You can do that at libertarianchristians.com slash donate. You can donate in a number of ways, some of which incur fees for us and some of which do not. And you can either choose to pay those fees or not. However you want to do it, any small amount actually helps. We actually do encourage people to sign up for some sort of monthly contribution. So that gives us a better sense of how things are going to go each month through the year. So even if it's as little as five, 10 bucks a month, that really helps us a lot. You know That really adds up when more and more people do it. So we appreciate all of your support, whether it's sharing, liking, reviewing, and doing all that. But we, of course, appreciate an actual financial donation to the Libertarian Christian Institute. Wow, we we got a little off—not yeah. off-topic, but we got we expanded upon that a little bit. <laughs> yeah. But the point that I think it's important for people now to know that this whole idea that the state is deceiving us into believing that it has a proper role to play mm-hmm. is just evidence in one particular instance where the state actually is overtaking an institutional role that it doesn't have the authority to take, and. In one way, it's like the crowd out effect, but I think the point is even more so that the state wants to be the end-all be-all of our existence. Yeah. And it's an entity that is such that it is competing with Christian institutions, Christian values, and Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think you had all of that in mind when you said it deceives us, but because it certainly does, but I think an additional point that I would you know, kind of throw in there that there would be no time to say this in a debate, of course, is that the state is inherently at odds with the kingdom of God, yep. and therefore, because it is at odds, it tries to usurp the authority. And oh, yeah. so you give the state authority to define marriage. Well, what's going to happen when you have the critical race theorists in? Yeah. Like when right. they say that you can't marry a black person because you're white, because you know what? That's colonialism or some
2: <laughs> Could you some believe that actually like,
0: came back into being? Holy oh, I moly, know, right? I did not
2: even thought about that. But well,
0: like, I mean, look at the Me Too movement. Yeah. Who are the Puritans now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's a little far afield. But again, imagine the power of the legislation that you want to enact in the hands yeah. of your enemies. Yeah. That's... Where we stand well, on this?
2: We'll see how long it takes me to get to the, you know, the government that can give everything you want is also the government uh, that can take it all away. I'm pretty oh, sure I say yes. that at some point. I, I just also throw out, like, I had forgotten that I actually brought up anti-miscegenation laws in here. <laughs> That's, That's good. I was like, I just rub that one in a bit. <laughs> yeah. Now, additionally, it is in the government's interest to control marriage. Oh. And why might oh. it do this? What incentive does the government have to <laughs> define, create, regulate, and control marriage? Well, when it wants to take power unto itself, it will be willing to sow the seeds that will break apart the family and cause people to become more dependent upon it. The more we seed over this oh, sort of sick. power to the government, <laughs> the more dependent that we will become upon the government. Stab that one The state man. also distorts the meaning of law to us in this regard. yeah instead of letting marriage remain in the realm of private law. And instead of the state focusing on negative law and upon the enforcement of contracts, it corrupts reason. It corrupts our language by taking upon itself the power to define and to regulate. As some libertarian philosophers have said, the power power to classify is the power to destroy. Very much like the power to tax. Can we pause there for a second? That point comes from a friend of mine named Manuel. I won't say his last name just to protect him a little bit, but (laughs) it's the power to classify as a power to destroy is a a Mm. more recent, shall we say, libertarian innovation. And uh, at least in terms of like the last 15 years. So hats off to Manuel for coming up with that phrase. Awesome. Pretty great. Thank you. And instead of focusing on the enforcement of contracts in private law, it creates dictates through legislative fiat that defines this is how you are to behave. This is how you are to arrange your contracts with each other. The solution then is to take away the power of the state, not give it additional power. Marriage spent 1,500 years or more outside of the realm of the state. There was no need for the state to do anything of it. It predates the nation state. We don't need that to occur.
0: You keep using the word the state and he was using the word government. Yeah, well, you know. (laughs) That's just, well, it's so important because it's like a clarifying way of thinking of, Mm -hmm. like, you have this entity that is doing its thing, going with its own agenda, like I described earlier, whereas he seems to have bought into the idea that government is what we do together.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, granted, the resolution, though, did specify the use of the word government. I'm just being, like, I'm narrowing it a little bit. which You know, so, like, I'm caveating that a bit, so. (laughs) Yeah. 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 No, no, I get that. Now, we don't have to rely on the state, ultimately. As I've said, marriage predates the state, and it is a powerful institution in and of itself. We can, as the church, ultimately make the greatest difference in society by promoting healthy marriages and healthy families through biblical teaching and solid theology. And this is where I believe Dr. Carlson ultimately shines in his philosophy and in his presentation. The state just needs to stay out of the way and let culture thrive. And that brings the real power of influencing marriages back to the church and allows us to, in our means of serving others, influence the surrounding culture. We as Christians Jocker. then ought to promote then the following. One is that we should promote freedom of association to pursue common interests. We oh, should suppose, promote suppose, freedom to contract. The whole deal about freedom of association and, and anti-miscegenation laws, that goes together, guys. I mean, like, that's a, like, this is a really foundational thing. That Mm -hmm. the moment that you allow the government to begin defining what relationships are valid and which ones are not, like you're abrogating freedom of association from the beginning, from the beginning. And so if we believe that individuals have freedom of association, that that is a foundational, you know, tenet of, of civilization itself, then like you can't begin to cede over power to a government in order to regulate relationships like this. And yeah, you may get some people who, do some weird stuff with their relationships. It's not the business of us to just figure out how to regulate all that together. Like, what's the point of that? You're far better off trying to just support the the healthy things that you know work, you know, like healthy Uh marriages, healthy churches, healthy families, rather than like trying to be the watchdog over the aberrant 1% or something like that. Anyway. We should promote the freedom to contract for mutual benefit. Mm -hmm. We should eliminate the special class citizens that marriage law has created. And we should extend those legal benefits to anyone who wishes to initiate contracts in a similar way. In so doing, we promote equality under the law. And in fact, this should be even very appealing to conservatives who want to make sure that the government gets as little money as possible. (laughs) And we should ultimately promote independence of the church. We should not be burdened by the dictates of the state in how we, as a church, arrange how we deal with our own Christian marriages. Now, that's not to say that the church should be uninvolved with society at large. We can do a whole lot in that regard. We can promote work like that which Dr. Carlson does, and we can promote these fundamental freedoms that we all have. And finally, government should ultimately get out of marriage entirely. And we should remember that if we do get what we want here, that we might be sowing our own seeds of destruction. You might get the political power that you need now to do all the things that you want, but when the powers turn against you, it's probably gonna come back at you with a vengeance. (laughs) In the end, anything that is so important that you think the government should define, regulate, and control it, is probably too important to let the government have any hand in it at all.
0: you were speaking to people who would want to say like we have this power to regulate, but like, no, you don't. You just voted or gave authority or delegated some ability for other people in power in a way that is very hard to undo. You're giving them and not even those particular people, maybe for an additional six years or four years or whatever the situation might be, maybe Supreme Court justices, you know, for one generation whatever that's maximum you don't have the power
2: you just gave it to a bunch of other people well and it's and it's just it comes down to this faulty idea one of the myths of american governance if you will or mm-hmm. the american state american statism is this kind of the we are the government sort of aspect to it yeah which frankly like oh is actually kind of uh if i recall right that's actually kind of rousseauian um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so mentioned by you know, Ooh. Rousseau mentioned by Carlson earlier in excoriation. Uh, and like, that idea is, is false. It is ideological camouflage that allows for the, the people who do have power to basically, you know, yeah. provide foils for what they want to do. Yep. Like, well, you know, we're just doing it to ourselves here or something. Like that That's garbage, guys. Like, don't ever believe it. <laughs> There's stronger words than garbage. Yeah. But for this episode. Yes. Um, yeah, for sure. Okay, so this is the five minute rebuttal next. Uh, it's never fair to
1: have my own quotes thrown back at me. <laughs> I that was good. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> well, the libertarian solution oh. that's been proposed here by Dr. Horn actually does seem very attractive. I wish it would succeed. Sweet. Alas, I don't believe it can or will, yeah. not in the real world. Yeah. And I offer three reasons. Two of a practical nature and one which might be called philosophical. <laughs> First, even if you have private contracts, private marriage contracts, you're still going to need someone to enforce decisions when there are disputes. That's what courts and police power do. No, that's what arbiters Can do. American <laughs> courts be expected and trusted and American police forces be expected and trusted to enforce a wide range of marital contracts? Just... Wait, 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 wait,
2: wait. Aren't aren't we supposed to back the blue here? Wait, wait, what's the... No, 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 man. That's a movement like a
0: decade later.
2: Oh, 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 (laughs) oh, right. Got it. Okay, yeah, my bad.
0: The cultural milieu (laughs) is not strong with the blue
4: (laughs) at this time. (laughs) I I did
0: not mean to rhyme. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Again.
1: Uh, Ah. Say that Roman Catholics sign up for contracts involving indissoluble unity unless a church official grants an annulment. Meanwhile, strict Lutherans will sign contracts which allows for divorce for reasons of adultery, although the guilty party may not remarry. For Muslims, men may have up to four wives. For Unitarian bisexuals, there will be a whole different set of rules, which I can't even imagine, <laughs> and so on. What happens when someone okay. claims that they've been converted? That's a funny joke. I'm no longer a Catholic. I'm not bound by my catholic marriage vows. To me it's simply inconceivable that our current court system with its heavy commitment to individualized sexual rights almost a core commitment at this point that it could ever sort its way through these questions in any consistent and fair manner.
0: Definitely some culture war really bias showing through can there. Imagine it happening practically it won't.
2: Okay. Pause right there. Like Like, this, I know. I I know that I do not address this particular point because I just wasn't as, I think, as astute at even analyzing arguments on the fly even ten years ago, like that. But like, just because you can't imagine it doesn't mean that it isn't conceivable. I mean, like that's kind of most of history couldn't imagine no slavery. Yeah. I mean, there's any number of ways that you can kind of go with that. So it's not really fair, I think, as an argument. Like I know. I know where he's getting at, but there actually are answers. I mean, if all your problem is, is that it's in, inconceivable right now to you. So you're saying, wait, oh, I just need to provide you like one possible example of how it might work out. Would that convince you? Yeah. No, I mean, it should. That should work. But that's not what he actually wants. Yeah. yeah. On some level. And that's often not the way these folks argue. And it, With as much respect as I would give to Dr. Carlson here even if I were to probably proffer, like, well, there is a conceivable way. It'd be like, well, that's not enough. You know, it needs to be, you need to actually have it all fleshed out. It's like, well, but yeah. that's question begging as well. Because likewise, what you're saying doesn't exist. Like I could just say, well, what you're asking for is inconceivable. And then what are you going to do? Like, <laughs> are you required to put out? Right. Is he required to put out the entirety of the apparatus right now? Like I, yeah. I don't think it's a fair. It would be unfair for. I think me he to assumes that, that he has
0: that. I think well, he probably assumes that he has it because it's simple. You just have the state have, enforce this thing. Yeah, just have that the state exists. enforce the
2: thing that exists. Yeah. already that isn't on the books like, or whatever. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's the state. We'll handle it. Because <laughs> we're the government and you're not, or some, I don't know. But no, it's it's not. In other words, it's not really a fair way of arguing. So anyway, I just yeah. I know that I'm not gonna. I'll actually say this here. When we get done with the five minutes, I do remember very distinctly feeling like that. Like, whoa, what am I about to do here? And I remember feeling like the space between him ending and me starting felt like a lifetime.
4: Mm. And I'm
2: fairly sure that it wasn't. Well,
1: we'll find out. (laughs) Be possible to maintain any limits on who might marry whom? Certainly, the limits of only two persons would not stand for it is clearly a residue of Christian bigotry, to insist on that. So group (laughs) marriages of a startling variety would surely follow. What about children? Only a few weeks ago, the American Psychological Association attempted to reclassify pedophilia as a sexual orientation, not a sexual disorder. Now, they backtrack somewhat. There was still enough of an outcry against that. But it's clear where they're headed. And it's also clear that American courts have been unusually responsive to changes in definitions made by the APA. What will this mean? Well, in the not-too-distant future, just count this as a prediction. Children who have reached the age of reason, which is usually understood to be the age of six or seven, also will be gaining a right to marry without interference by their parents. That's quite a bait and switch there, by the way. This compromise so to speak, will...
0: So explain what he's doing there. Like, I got a little bit of shock value of him. Like, my reaction was probably what he wanted to have, which was, wait, six- and seven-year-olds are going to be allowed to marry if we go down this destructive path of not having the state? Like, what? What's he doing there? What's his rhetoric I think it's a
2: bait-and-switch because it's essentially that, well, imagine that the consequence of what you're saying, this is it, as though that that's the inevitable thing it's a form of argumentation where, you know, he's trying to, to demonstrate here what the consequences are. But on some level, it's like almost the South Park way of doing arguments where it's like, well, you know, step one, you know, buy this, the underwear or whatever. And step two, question mark, question mark. And then step three, oh. profit. You know, it's this other way of like, well, step one, allow marriage to exit the state. Question mark, question mark, question mark. Step three, pedophilia. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't think that's a valid way of, realistically, like, it requires many more steps <laughs> to demonstrate. Yeah.
0: Well, to be fair, like he said that the whoever I forget who was referring to has backtracked people who have thought the pedophilia is an orientation that has not receded entirely. And that right. is something that some people do propose. And so on one hand, he is sort of right. But I don't hear anybody but advocating it's not the cons- that.
2: But that's the, that's not the consequence of the no, government getting not. out of marriage. It's already happening, no. guys. I mean, so no. like you're right. Yep, come on, like, do the Biden, come on, man. I don't know, whatever. But
0: I did that on another podcast too many times, and then I was just like, okay, I got to stop saying that. This arrangement <laughs> might be a better way to put it.
1: We'll quickly face a clash of rival philosophies, or better put, anthropologies, that have huge policy consequences. Okay, Christians understand human sexuality in a distinct way. You are born, either male or female, <laughs> and you fulfill and complete your sexual identity by finding someone of the opposite sex with whom you are compatible and whom you marry. In a healthy Christian order, all the signals sent to the young by parents, extended family members, church, and culture encourage this quest, which is truly and uniquely consummated in heterosexual marriage. However, the anthropology found in the LBGT community is very different. These folks hold that there are numerous sexual identities, lesbian, bisexual, gay, transsexual, along with heterosexual, and that young persons, indeed children, must conduct an individual quest to find out which of these orientations is right for them. This quest by children and young people is a fundamental human right in their worldview. Any attempt by parents, preachers, or others to overtly favor heterosexuality or to guide children toward traditional marriage becomes a violation of children's rights, an aspect of what is now being called heterosexism, a practice said to be wrong and evil as racism. These two are simply incompatible. My time is up.
2: Mr. Horn, you have six First off, I will begin with remarks that Dr. Carlson made earlier regarding, for instance, the Genesis 1 definition Ultimately, in a sense, he's supporting my point that marriage does predate all governments and all <laughs> other judicial representations. Marriage has happened in human society potentially millions of years before any of this thing that we call. Oh, So, in a sense, it begs the question: Why government is necessary in the first place? <laughs> he said that marriage is maintained through procreation. Absolutely. This is absolutely true. And it's something that cannot be done by homosexuals. That's absolutely true. Ultimately, (laughs) even on an evolutionary basis, homosexuality is a losing battle. (laughs) Marriage is ultimately going to prevail and it's not gonna matter what they wanna call it at any future date. Our responsibility as Christians, however, is to oppose the way that they want to present it to you in today's culture. Just as Dr. Carlson said, we are to oppose this, what would heterosexism?
1: Heterosexism.
2: Yeah. How bizarre. But we don't have to agree with those definitions. We can come back and argue against them. And I would say we have a much better chance of being successful at doing so if we do not do so using the force of the state behind us. Amen. <laughs> Dr. Carlson mentioned all sorts of scenarios where tyrannical governments put forward various legal challenges to traditional marriage. And I would say those are really good examples for why you don't want to put marriage (laughs) in the jurisdiction of the state. (laughs) It supplants common law, it supplants private law, it supplants contractual law. And it creates instead contracts with the public power as opposed to understanding that Christian marriage is a covenant between man and woman and is part of the jurisdiction of the church. It's interesting that he even cited the French philosopher who even suggested that the state is interested in fertility for production of children for war. Is that the way that we want a state to look oh. at how we arrange our families? No.
0: as Chris this is a he went there argument. <laughs> you know, I wonder how that sits with that sort of audience? Because my guess is that sort of audience is not necessarily, at least back in 2013, (laughs) anti-war. They were like, well, war is a necessary tool, blah, blah, blah. So like that may not have had the, I wonder if it had the intended effect on on the listener. I hope it does now, for sure.
2: I don't know. What I will say, I'm 100% certain the uh, video will not show this at the end. But it is funny to note that at the end of this, and this is like after all the Q and a and whatnot, which I, I know we're not going to go through that tonight. And I may, I may do some commentary on the Q and a at a later date, but suffice to say that after the debate was over, I got like a flood of people and we had, we were conversing on topics for yet like another hour and a half.
4: Hmm. And
2: I was explaining libertarian ideas and talking more about this stuff and expanding upon I, stuff that we had discussed and, and so on, and and whereas uh, Dr. Mitchell and Dr. Carlson, I'm pretty sure had a couple of people go up to them, you know, but they were not swarmed. Uh, it it was actually kind of reminiscent of the uh, what was it the the Hyatt Keynes rap battle. I mean, that's a little bit perhaps a bit uh slightly egotistical to refer to that. Although we did recently have the originator of such John Capola yeah. on the uh, on our main podcast, but uh, that was. Well,
0: anyway. <laughs> well, let's keep hearing what you have to say. Yeah.
2: What was, you had to, yeah. We should not be promoting war. We are men and women of peace. There oh. is no reason to partner with the state who has interests like that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Nice, yeah. nice turn of phrase there,
2: partner we with the state. We are not about production of citizens who will serve the state. We are about production of citizens and the kingdom of God. Bam! And in that way, we don't need to depend upon the state for these sorts of things. You mentioned also contractual.
0: You could have said something like, you know, if the state defines marriage, then basically it puts us in service of procreating for war. <laughs> I mean, I, I, that would have been a good <laughs> I mean, you kind you kind of said that, that it, but I mean,
2: yeah. No, but that, well, at least that's what the Rousseauians would uh, even kind of yes. going at back in the day. Uh,
0: where we're, we're procreating a little militants. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, school enforcement.
2: Now, this is an interesting subject that kind of goes beyond the scope of our conversation today a little bit there are plenty of ways in which contracts can be enforced by third parties oh. and can be agreed upon beforehand without oh. the use of a state at all. Oh, I did go there. And in fact, <clears throat> we could cite the nice. the multitude of instances even in today's modern American society where arbitration is used much more often between both individuals and businesses to solve differences than traditional courts these days because courts are completely ineffective and out of control. I
0: would argue I don't think people realize how frequent our lives are arbitrated by other non-legal entities. Like, anarchy exists pretty smoothly. Like, I I do realize that, like, in the Nozickian sort of way, there is this state that's sort of the backdrop of, like, if for some reason we had to sue Chase Manhattan Bank, we could. And it would be, the you know, it could eventually go to the Supreme Court or something like that. But, like, most of our lives is pretty much outside the
2: state. Yeah, that's sort of true. And even though the divorce courts are actually like a big deal, like that's actually where, I mean, a lot of courts do get really caught up in just divorce court. Like that's... Because there's a lot of divorces, which sucks. I mean, but that's the American milieu that we live in as well. Mm. So, you know, take we're it what selfish it selfish
0: individuals.
2: But it's just funny because we, we were talking to I was like, I wasn't sure if I got, you know, I sort of indicated I felt like that was a disingenuous way of arguing there. And I didn't quite... Call him on exactly that point, but I did answer it. So, yay. Great job, Past Norm. You did, did pretty good there. <laughs> I think I have a new title for this episode. In fact, it is better to great avoid job, the courts entirely, <laughs> as in fact, Jesus kind of warned us to do at times rather than allow for marriage to go into the court of law. <laughs> now, he says, maybe I would work in an, an ideal world and he can't imagine the way it would work, but in reality, actually, it has worked before. Oh. Predating the nation state, how in the world did ancient Israel even deal with marital covenants before oh. the time of the kings? Oh did it man. Have some sort of state-run court? No, it used a private law system under which to deal with differences. <laughs> Do I have any time left? Sick, I can't believe I did that. <laughs> I'm in it in 20 seconds. I just, um, paused there. I just, that, that literally, I, I that was like, I smashed it. Right there. I mean, that was the answer. That was the answer. Like you can't imagine it, but you are, you're, you're, your you very are, own Bible. Your Bible says it worked. <laughs> oh wow, that's even. Dang, I was on. I was on point. <laughs> I guarantee you, I did not prepare that point because this is rebuttal section. So nice, nice. Dang, I the was. Final man. thing that, that he's mentioned: uh, definitions of deviance. Again, this is an issue. That comes to, does the government have the right to classify these sorts of things at all? When it takes to itself the power to define law like this, it enters into the realm of positive law rather than dealing with violations of rights themselves. Yeah. Because if it can define what pedophilia is, then it gets to define that you weren't, well, I don't know, dealt with by a pedophile, I suppose. But in, in the- Not my strongest point. In the common law- and in private law eh, it's an awkward and in point to the make the way that we've looked yeah. at negative law throughout history, we deal with this in terms of violation of rights, not by state definitions. Yeah. So that kind of recovered it a little bit, but not my best point. Uh, one minute to bring it all together. <laughs> oh, one minute. That's <laughs> there's a lot a, I could say in like response. A minute.
1: I'm, I think what I'm just going to do, though, is, re, is just kind of conclude the point. Gene I was Epstein odd, would have given, given you more time for about these two human anthropologies that are in conflict today, right now, here in the real world of the United <laughs> States of America, 2000. And I don't dispute that. Point, not ancient which, Israel. Yeah. The LGBTQ right. argument prevails. Parents and religious communities will not be allowed to well, interfere that's... with their children's sexual quest. That's clearly stated goal. And I think you can see where that would lead relative to issues such as education and child custody. This is why Robert George, one of our nation's leading authorities on religious liberty, now tells religious leaders that there will be no successful grand compromise on the marriage question. Not in our time. This grand compromise being, we accept same-sex marriage, you let us run our own affairs, hold on to our understandings of sexuality, marriage, and human purpose within our own communities. It will not happen. Instead, for reasons like the one I described a little earlier, Dr. George says that if you lose on the marriage issue, you will also lose on religious liberty.
2: I think those are somewhat orthogonal, but I get where he's, I understand where he wants to go with that, but it's not entirely fair.
0: Like, I don't know if I agree with that at all. Like, he's making this issue the penultimate issue of, like, religious liberty. Like, that. Yeah. Like if we lose them... I don't think... I don't we, know.
2: Yeah, you haven't You're made a right, case. They're case. Ortho-
0: they're orthogonal, and it's almost like it wasn't even part of his case in the whole time. It was more like... Like, if you would have said... If he would have started off with, you know, religious yeah. freedom is at risk, and this is, you know, sort of the... Touchstone of that. Yeah. And I can sort of understand that point, but it's like he ends with religious liberty. Like maybe he's trying to, you know, the charitable way is like he's trying to appeal to someone like you who is like, well, but it's a religious liberty is really, really important, you know, that kind of thing.
2: Yeah. That's a very charitable way of addressing, you know, and and maybe that's exactly what he was intending. And that's fair. Yeah. we We could give him that. And yeah. But is that a logical progression of where we're at? And I don't think it, that he's made a case, that that's what would happen. And I right. don't think that it is realistically what would follow.
0: No, and in 11 years since, we've seen a concurrent fading of religious liberty as yeah. well as, I mean, this issue, at least governmentally, has been settled. I hate saying the word settled, but we understand <laughs> what I mean by that. Been legislated on. This issue has passed the national conversation. Okay. Sure. So, in some ways, you know, this isn't, I wouldn't say an antiquated discussion, but it's a discussion of the role of the state on one particular issue. It's really, really important. We're past that. And
2: well, technically, this debate even happened post those points as well. I mean, really. So, well, but we're not debating this anymore
0: as a national yeah, well, conversation. It's not the issue that conservatives are bringing up. I mean, they might be yeah. grudgingly complain about it, but but we haven't seen religious liberty fade because of this. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's more time for us to, you know, maybe in 20 years, Norm, you and I will be doing, you know, the 4,500 episode of, you know, <laughs> LCI. And we're, you know, admitting that, you know, Alan Carlson was right about this one point, you know, 36 years ago. Anyway, I'm going to let you get to your your final rebuttal. I,
4: did I get one? I'm not sure. I think he had that final word. It's gotten us off to a an excellent start. Yeah. And now we're going to turn to the part of our program where yes. you all get to ask this questions is where they go to the of our... <laughs>
0: Wait, so you didn't get a one-minute rebuttal? Or no, you no I, had,
2: see, I had six minutes.
0: Oh, okay. I was like waiting for your one-minute, like, yeah. just random, you know, just like rapid fire (laughs) zingers to finish this out. Yeah, Like that was really what I was like coping for. Mm -hmm. So what are your concluding thoughts
2: here? I'm surprised going through this again and going like, oh, actually like that, I think I did pretty well overall. and It wasn't exactly as I remembered it, that's for sure. Uh, (laughs) But you know, your memories fade and these more permanent records are...
0: Well, your answers and your responses were really solid. I mean, I think in some ways you'd probably... I don't know, 80-plus percent of the outline, you'd probably say again,
2: right? Yeah, I think at least 80%. I mean, I I feel like there's probably some additional things I would have wanted to go at and just, you know, things that you don't think about in the heat of the moment and where you might think about it later. Is there anything that you
0: have learned or even if it's just rhetoric, but um, anything you've learned in the 11 years since now that you're a better libertarian? Well, I think it's more like nine years
2: since as opposed to the other way around. But-
0: uh, Oh yeah, I keep saying 11 I, years and I don't <laughs> know why it's it's not 2024, Doug. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> I think that even I probably would, would say that I underestimated some of the things that Alan did talk about with regards to the pressing concerns about the upcoming cultural situations regarding transgenderism in particular and mm-hmm. whatnot. I think the surprising thing, and maybe it's just I didn't, I don't know, maybe it's just the way that I uh, my own cultural experience and and background would not have led me to believe that the public schools were gonna be yeah. the huge vector of intrusion in this regard with respect to gender identity issues and whatnot. Like I just yeah. I, I guess I just didn't think about it that way. It's interesting that, you know. When we think about what he said nine years ago and where we are now, there are some legitimate concerns there. But it's not because the government didn't make it, this definition more solid. It is mm. because of irresponsibility on our part, that being the church, to direct culture in solid and you know healthy ways. So, like we don't have a lot to blame other than ourselves in this regard, because when you cede over power for the education of your children to the public schools and the state, like, what else are you going to get? So like, you're not not helping yourself by trying to increase the power of the government in just whatever direction you feel like you want at the time. Like, within another couple of years, the conservatives got what they wanted. You know, they got four years of their conservative icon, you know, Hmm. at the helm, along with a conservative Congress for two years. So like, it's not as though they didn't have their shot. You know, so it's not as though that things didn't go their way. <laughs> it's, that is the reality here. So, mm, yeah, I don't think that Dr. Carlson ultimately made the stronger case. I mean, I sort of like, oh, yeah, because, you know, I mean, I am me. I mean, even nine years hence. So, yeah, but nonetheless, like, I think that, like, he had some important things to say and he makes some great points. I think that like I was genuinely intrigued by Dr. Carlson's writings back then, even on the part of like the state of the court system, no fault divorces, which mm-hmm. I, I thought his writings on that were fascinating as I, I didn't get into more than a few seconds, but like it was legit, interesting stuff to read what he had to say. But it doesn't make the case that you need to increase the power of the state and that you need to initiate aggression against other people in order to to win this culture war. Like that's not the way this works. Yeah. yeah. So, I wish that if I were to, you know, kind of change up some of the language, I would have focused more on the inherent aggression necessary in order to carry out this culture war and kind of note that the Christian way of doing things is not to play that game. Yeah. And I kind of allude to that in various capacities, but I think that's the main way I would have changed it up a bit. Nice. Well...
0: This has been a fun exercise in, uh, you know, I don't know, it's just like uh, reminiscing. Because I remember after this debate, you sent this to me, and this was great that it was recorded. I think I might have even been able to tap into it live while it was uh, live streaming. And then I had to like watch the recording later. So I'm glad you found this in the, you know, (laughs) the annals of your archival drives on your computer or wherever it was. Yeah. We were able to kind of use this. Yeah. So anyway, well, um, thanks for... I, I feel like I'm talking to you like you're a guest. Duh. Yeah. Um, but like, thanks for joining me, Norm. Oh, you're,
2: you're welcome, Doug. It's a pleasure to be here. And do make sure, like, if you're listening to this, go and like, watch it. It's fun.
0: <laughs> yeah. At the very least, you'll get to see Norman's reactions to himself. Which actually, and I I don't mean that. I mean that somewhat humorously, but there's actual visual reaction to some of the things being said that you will obviously... It would have been in silence. You would sure listening. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll see you next time.